Good, are we on? Good morning. Good morning. There we go. We're, we're, uh, if I could have your attention, please. Good morning. Uh, appreciate you coming this morning. Uh, it is a little early. I was telling some folks that last night when I was talking to my wife, Mona, I said that we, that we finished at 10 o'clock and we're going to meet back for breakfast at 8 and, and get started. And, uh, and then I'm going to speak till 3 and then I'm going to talk and uh, do the sermon on Sunday. And, and, she, uh, and, and she loves me. Um, and she was questioning the wisdom of that for you all. Um, so so I, 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 hope, I hope that um, my prayer this morning would be that, um, that this would be intriguing enough um, that we would stay focused as well as we can and that we would, um, would, that we would allow that God to use this to kind of change the way that we think about maybe our lives and our stories. Um, there were a couple of questions. I thought we'd start with those and we'll say a prayer and we'll get started. So let's look at the questions. The first one is, why are you so good looking? No, that's not true. <laughs> I know that's not even funny. Um, uh, the first one, great question was, uh, how do I develop purpose for my family? Remember, we talked about a good story is a high purpose and, uh, and, and, and when you think about um, that, that sometimes our stories get hijacked, um, you, you realize the average person in the U.S. sees 3,000 commercial meshes, messages a day. Um, not not 3,000 commercials, but 3,000 commercial messages uh, where there's an image put before you, an idea put before you. There is a... Uh, there is literally a war going against your soul for you to live a small story and for you to live a life that's not very purposeful, to get you caught up with stuff or things or new toaster ovens um, instead, of, instead of something that really matters. And so it's a great question when somebody says, how do I develop purpose for their family? Um, I, I, would, I would make sure purpose is something that's more caught than taught. You, you, when, when parents say, we're going to, we want to be a high-purpose family, but their kids don't see them um, living in a way that's sometimes sacrificial for a bigger cause, or they don't see, um, you know, that, that's, that, that there's, a, there's a problem with that. But think about, think about inviting your kids to things that are, that are important and passionate. I remember, um, and, and you can even do it in terms of traditions, um, we, we started uh, one Thanksgiving trying to do something um, with our Bible study where we, um, we, we packed, packaged meals together uh, that would end, eventually go to Haiti or wherever. Um, and because we, because we wanted to get them something about Thanksgiving to be more than just let's see how much we can eat and then, then let's go and shop um, and, um, and so this, our whole Bible study started coming together, and it's been a, a few years now. Um, and, and this past year, my, my daughter's getting married right after Thanksgiving, and we were talking about, well, maybe we won't be able to do this or do that. And they said, we have to make sure we, we package meals. 
Um, because there's something about that, that all of a sudden they realized that may be one of the more important things they did. Um, you just don't, don't miss the opportunity to be about important things in your community, um, in the world, and invite your kids to be about that. Um, let, let your, even, with, even with Skyler, my autistic son, um, it's probably not wise to just give panhandlers money. But in his world, uh, that he wants to help people. And, and so when he sees that, that's an immediate, I want to help. And so we'll, you know, we've turned the car around to go back to the intersection to give a couple of dollars to somebody that I realize that's probably not the best way to help that person, but it's the best way to connect Skylar to the idea that you're doing something that matters. Um, and so... So I, I think you have to be intentional because you are going against a tide that is going to try to, to hijack your family and your children to a very small purpose. In a minute, one of my first points is, is, is I, the idea of living in a larger story. We're going to talk about it in just a minute, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, but but uh, th- there is a conspiracy to hijack you to living a life of low purpose. And if you live a life of low purpose, you'll become more cynical and you'll just kind of become more dutiful and not passionate and you just won't, you won't live in a way that you won't tell a great story with your life. Satan loves that. So, um, you know, what are you passionate about? What, what are your kids passionate about? You know, get them involved in, in something that says we're going to we're going to make a difference. We're going to help our neighbor with this. We're going to, um, you know, the, the passage that, that people put on, you know, I, I call them the Christian ashtray passages um, that, you know, they put in the Christian bookstore. They, they take them out of context usually, and, and we put them on, you know, ties and ashtrays and things. But, you know, the Jeremiah 29 passage that everybody is given for, you know, you're given for graduation that... You know, the Lord knows the plans for you and uh, they're to prosper you and not to harm you. That's a, great, that's a great little message. It's better understood in the context. In the context, these people are in exile. These people are living in Babylon and that's not where that's not home for them. And Jeremiah is writing to these people to teach them how they should live when they're in exile. And, and he starts that, that whole letter to them saying, and I, this is just real quick, but this is, understanding that you have a purpose. And, th- and these are people who believe, I don't belong here. This isn't where I want to be. Um, and, and there was a prophet of the day that was telling the people, hey, everything's going to be great. Uh, you know, everything is awesome. And th- I think that's what he was saying, exactly. And, uh, and everything's going to be wonderful. And Jeremiah was saying, wait a minute. That's not true. You're in exile, and God brought you to the exile. And, and he says... Build your houses, plant your gardens. And the first thing he says, and I'll just be real quick, you read this later on. If you, if you get bored with me, just read, read this passage. I, I, I want Andrew to write a book about um, ashtray verses in the Bible that, that, are, that, that people, Christians take out of, out of context, but when you put them back into context, they're just so powerful. But this passage, um, it starts by basically saying, unpack, grow where you're planted. If you're in exile, unpack. Uh, build your houses, plant your gardens, let your kids marry. I mean, it's, it's, it says, 
Don't live out of the suitcase. Live, you know, unpack. You know, we, we lived in our house for 13 years. And in the garage the other day, I found a, a, a box that we moved from Dayton, Tennessee that's never been opened. You know, anything? <laughs> it's like, must be really important stuff in there. Um, and he's in, 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 the, in the passage, Jeremiah is, is not saying, hey, everything's wonderful. He's saying, you're in exile. And how do you live in exile? Unpack. Unpack. And live there. You know, build your houses and plant your gardens. The second thing he says is pray for the city um, because when it prospers, you prosper. It just be a good citizen. You know, be a good citizen. And so what he's inviting you to do, what he's inviting you to do is live even when life is, even when you're in exile, even if the culture is becoming less Christian, even if you don't like your neighbors, even if you wish you were someplace else, live in a way with high purpose. I mean, the, the, you know, the context of that passage is many of the people hearing that those words would die before the promise of he's made the plans for him, declares the Lord. Uh, because it says at the end of that section, right before the verse that everybody remembers, it says... In 70 years, God will do what he said. He'll take you home. And after 70 years, some of the people reading that wouldn't have made it. And so there's a, just a really fascinating passage. In this. And, and the idea is to live with purpose even in a setting that is, feels purposeless. Or, and in and, and our culture, you know, and I know that we're mad about our culture going nuts, but we probably not, shouldn't be so surprised by that. And instead of kind of stomping around going, I want my country back and I want my culture back, and, and I do too, I mean, I do. Maybe God is inviting us to live purposely in the middle of this in such a way that people actually do come to you and say, why do you have hope? Why, tell me about why the reason that you have hope in the midst of this. And you, and you look at him and say, oh, I know the end of the story, and you live with purpose. And, 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 I'm, and I just want to tell you, half the time I don't live with purpose. Instead, I just stomp around complaining, but things aren't the way I want it to be. And back in the day, we did this. I mean, I, I thought, um, and, and, and it is disappointing in some ways. But that's, that, that's the context of that Jeremiah passage. How do you develop purpose? Uh, you do that by um, understanding that you really already have purpose. You just need to, to fight the, um, the lesser purposes that are stealing your children and yourself away. Even if you are in exile, you have a purpose, according to the Bible. Hey, next question was this. What did you mean about physicality? Um, and when I said... The, the, a good story, we were talking about what creates warmth. And I said, physicality creates warmth. And, and, I, and I use the biblical terminology and the biblical idea that, that God, when he redeemed creation to himself, kind of got his fingernails dirty. And, and, um, and, and, and I, we talked about the incarnation. And, um, but I think this person was saying, was kind of saying, hey, outside of that biblical idea of incarnation, what do you mean by physicality? In terms of people's relationships, how, how, what did you mean by physicality? And, and I just want to tell you, um, we are created as sensual beings. Um, 
And um, one of the hardest things for, for Mona, my wife, with our son Skylar with autism is he doesn't like to be touched. Breaks Mona's heart. Mona's a toucher. And he just doesn't, he doesn't like to be touched. He, he doesn't know, he doesn't sense, um, he doesn't have a very proper understanding of, of touch. And so you, if you touch him, he doesn't know if you hit him or touched him. So, you know, we'll, you'll be in a grocery store and you'll kind of just say, Skylar, we need to go over here. And he'll go, don't hit me! You know, he's going, you know, I did not hit him. I promise I did not hit him. Um, but, um, but, but we, but that's in that, that's, um, that's an anomaly. The way we're made is sensually. And, and I'd love us to get that word back because that word has kind of become to mean sexual. And that's not what that really word means. It's just sensual. We are sensual beings. And, and touch, um, touch is a part of what you're made for. I mean, often people who have lost a loved one, um, I've got a person who lost a spouse not that long ago and, and, and they go to a, so they go to a, a, um, a chiropractor and that has a masseuse there, and the and the, and, I, and they said I really don't need the, I just need the touch. I don't really need the adjustment. I just need touch. And so um, sometimes when I present that material and say that a, a good story is you know creates warmth, and one way to do that is physicality. People think I'm talking, that's kind of code, Christian code for sex. That I'm talking about married couples, making sure you're sexual. And, and of course, that would be a, be a small part of what I'm talking about. But there's just a way in which um, appropriate, appropriate connecting and touching is a part of healthy people. Um, and um, and in, in, in married couples, if, if we were to talk about married couples, that would include... Sexuality, but one of the problems with sexuality in most married couples is, um, just to be honest, is I mean I do a lot of marriage counseling, and that what has happened is the only time they touch is when it's sexual, and that makes it a very, it doesn't make it near as enjoyable or as pleasant as what they would hope, um, because it's not sensual; it's just sexual. And so when when I talked about a good story has physicality in it, and we talked about a good story. God's story has the incarnation in it, which is literally physicality of, of divinity, that, that that's, that's modeled or mirrored in our regular relationships by appropriate touch. Um, just appropriate touch. And we're, we're kind of made for that. Um, and and that, that's a good thing. Make sense? All right, those are the two questions. Remember, if you have any other questions, just put them up here on the uh, up here on whatever this is, and we'll uh, we'll go over that. Let me say a prayer for us this morning, and we'll get started. Father, thanks for the privilege to be here this morning to think about the big story that you're telling, and that uh, and to think you've you've slowed the story down enough to include us. You've slowed the story down enough to make sure that we understand that we're a part of your grand, grand story. 
So Father, I bring you the same question I did yesterday for the, and the same request. For the people in this room that are too comfortable, would you use this material to disrupt them? For the people that are disrupted, would you use this material to comfort them? That we would know and, and, and see you more clearly. Father, we would humbly ask that somehow the conversations we have this weekend would echo into your world that somehow thousands of years from now in eternity that the stories would be told of the lives in this room of how they've cared for their neighbors and their, their, their children and each other and that their story of your glory would would be told over and over. We humbly ask for such. We pray in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. It was about five or six years ago. We were at Buffalo Wild Wings, my son Pierce and I. And... I think all good all good conversations which should include wings. Um, they um, I just had my blood taken not that long ago, and they they found chunks of blue cheese and <laughs> buffalo sauce. They, they said they're not sure what this is, but I said I know what it is. It's buffalo sauce. Um, I, it may be a phenomena that very few people have ever existed, but um, so Pierce and I are sitting there now. Pierce is an artist sort of guy. He's my other son. And Pierce is an artist. I mean, he likes, and he's, he kind of wants to learn the hard way. You know, I, I'm, I'm always saying things like, well, son, I could help you with that. And he goes, that's okay. I got it. And then I watch him crash. And it's a horrible plan. Um, but he's, he's a great guy. Loves the Lord. Um, and he was, he decided, um, and this was first couple of years of college, he decided to be, he, he was in a band. Um, and, and this, you, you don't even know what this is anymore, but um, it's a genre that um, has long been forgotten, uh, but it was ska music. And I don't know if you've ever heard ska music, but it's kind of one step above noise. <laughs> um, I mean, if, if you were to... Um, but he's really talented, and it's kind of sad to see someone with such talent musically to, to be um, playing, you know. Uh, and, you know. But I would go and listen to their band play. They were called Yuka Scavia. Um, I'm sure you have all their albums. Um, and and I, I remember... Um, I remember going to hear Yugoscavia play many times to try to be a supportive parent and, and, and thinking, um, it, it's for this. We, we paid for piano lessons. It's for this. We, <laughs> we bought that trumpet for him. It was for this that we, that we listened to the, we sat through, you know, fifth grade band practice. Um, <laughs> you know, it's for this that we're now playing ska music. Um, but anyway... He started thinking that they were going to be the next big ska thing, which is, there is no next big ska thing. <laughs> you know, um, 
it, it's, it's not a genre that even his generation listens to. I mean, it would be like, let's do a polka band. I mean, no one listens to it. So, but they thought they were going to be the next big ska band, and they were getting some gigs and, and playing some places, and, and they were talking about... Um, they were talking about making it big, and they did an album. Um, I helped pay for that album. Um, <laughs> one of the many foolish things I've done in my life. And um, it, it's, um, anyway, I don't know what to, uh, it, it's, the story get, could go longer. But just to say, he was becoming enamored by this and deciding it was going to be a big deal. And so this was a summer. He had, he had taken a job as a whitewater rafting guide for a Christian camp in North Carolina. And so he was leaving to go to North Carolina. Um, and so we ran out for wings. And we were sitting together. And I remember I looked him in the eyes and I said, uh, son, if you get to North Carolina and you find that Christian, that community, that Christian community kids you're working with, and you find out they're all going to some university somewhere else or some college somewhere else, or even if you find in there a bunch of them are going to stay and work at the camp over the year and, and, and not go to school, it would kill me. But it's fine with me if you don't come back. And instead, you chose to live um, with those Christian kids making a big difference like that. And he looked at me, uh, and, and I said, don't misunderstand. I love you dearly. I don't misunderstand. I'm not kicking you out of our house. But watching you live in a small story is killing me. You are made for so much more. And, and I remember he, there's, there's a tear that, that kind of comes in his eyes. He's a good kid, just a good kid. And, uh, but it's so easy. It's so easy for our stories to get hijacked into small. And, and, just, to, um, and just to settle for small. And think small is big. Now, don't misunderstand. I don't mean, when I say live in a big story, I don't mean an extravagant story. I don't mean you're going to make a million dollars or you're going to play for the NBA or you're going to, because that's not, that's not a big story to God. A big story is a single mother who works two jobs to raise her kid. That's a, that's a great story. A story, a big story is a story that impacts, that makes a difference, that, that literally the phrase I've used a couple of times today, yesterday was, it echoes into eternity. That's a big story. Three assumptions um, that will make you live a small story. Um, and... Um, You know, developmental psychologists tell us that when an infant is born, 
It's incredibly egocentric to the point that the only thing it knows is what's around it. Uh, it, it, it it's thinking. That, that's why an infant doesn't even have object permanence, meaning that a, that a little infant, as you know, developmentally, that's why when you play peekaboo with a little baby, they, they're just going nuts. And you think, what's wrong with this child? Because all you did, you pulled down a blanket and went, Woo, and the kid goes, and then you put it back up and the kid goes, well, to the child who doesn't have object permanence, when you disappear from their, their, their line of sight, you disappeared. And it's like, and it's like you're a magician. And so they drop their pacifier and they go nuts and you go, come on, get over it. We're going to pick it up right now. I mean, what's your problem? It's, it disappeared. And early in neonata, an infant doesn't have object permanence yet because we're born incredibly egocentric in the way that we think and the way we understand the world. Um, that progresses in our lives, and if that doesn't change, you'll live a small story. The first false assumption that people that live in small stories would be is that the world revolves around them. That life is about them. And so when I say we live in a big, that God's inviting you to live in a big story, it's not live in a big story about you. Um, it's live in a big story about him that has you in it. Uh, but the first false assumption that will make you live a small story is that, is that um, the world revolves around you and what you want is most important and you won't be happy unless you get every little thing you want. Boy, that, nothing will make you live a smaller story than selfishness. Have you ever dealt with people that are, that, I remember when my mother was getting, um, in, in her last few years of life, the hardest thing about her is her, her world got so small. She, she didn't understand, she, she kind of lost perspective of something bigger and it became very small. Sometimes with Skyler, because of his autism, his world is very small. It doesn't, it, doesn't get, it doesn't get bigger around other things. And if you want to live a small story, think the world revolves around you and your stuff and your needs and everything about you. And developmentally, that's foolishness. You know, the, the reason parenting is so hard is that basically the important task in parenting is that you're supposed to take a child who's born foolish and help them become wise. And the reason that's hard for us is that parents, we're still foolish ourselves. But a working definition of foolishness is that my way is the best way and what I want and the world revolves around me. And a working definition for wisdom is God's way is the best way and the world revolves around him. And getting from it's all about me to it's all about him is, is the difference of living in a small story that will fade quickly and living in a story that will be spoken of 2,000 years from now in eternity. It amazes me. I work at a seminary with a big library, um, and some of the books haven't even been colored in yet. That's a... That's a... But one of the amazing things um, is I'll see these books 
covered in dust that some guy poured his life into 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago, and it was going to be the book on infralipsarianism or something, you know, some, some big theological thing that was going to change, change the whole outlook of the world, and nobody's read the book in years. And there's nothing, it's just the world is fickle. And if you really do want to live a small story, even if it's big by earth standards, it's forgotten pretty quickly. And so the first lie that you have to get rid of if you want to live a bigger story is that it's all about you. The world revolves around you. Second lie is I don't need people and people don't need me. You will not live a big story unless you understand the importance of relationships. Researchers tell us that a human being is capable of having close intimate relationships with about 12 people at a time. I mean, in their lives. Some people a little more than that, some people a little less. Introverts maybe a little more, extroverts a little more, I mean, a little less, maybe a little more, who knows. And until you understand that those relationships matter and that you're investing in those sort of relationships, you'll live a small story. It'll be a scattered story or it'll be a lonely story. You can fall off this one side or the other. You can become an inch deep and 10 miles wide and have lots of acquaintances but no real relationships. Or you can isolate yourself and say, people hurt me and and have no real relationships and no one really knows you. But either way is based on a lie that will give you a small story because you are a relational being created by a relational God made to connect and have relationships with others. And if you want to have a big story, you need to make sure it's a relational story. We had a, we had a professor at RTS, smartest guy I've ever met, with the exception of Andrew, the smartest guy next to Andrew that I've ever met. His name is Bruce Walkey. Bruce Walkey, scholars don't make you feel stupid. Scholars make you curious. Every time I ever heard Bruce speak, I wanted to quit my job and study Hebrew um, because he was so brilliant. He knew so much Hebrew. I mean, he would break down a passage and I go, how do I, blah. And I would just say, okay, I'm gonna quit my job. And I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna try to study at that level. I mean, he's just amazing. Um, you know, just a, a fascinating man. And let me tell you, I can, I can tell you a Bruce Walkie story that's related to this point but you won't think it's related to this point, the first four minutes of the story. So if you'll just kind of <laughs> hang with the story for a minute, could I, could I would that be okay? You know, this is the first of many tangents uh, the, or, or rabbit trails. Those of you, yeah, any of you know the Myers-Briggs? If, how many of you are, if, if you know, J's are people who like structure, like closure, hate ambiguity. Do, if you think you're a J, just raise your hand. We have been at war now for two days. <laughs> so anyway, real quick, here's the story. 
Bruce Walkie, Bruce Walkie comes up to me and he says, uh, Jim, I'd wonder if you want to go out to eat lunch with me. There's something I'd like to talk to you about. I go, oh, no. Evidently, he heard one of my goofy things I said about theology. Bruce Walkie is going to take me to the woodshed, and he's going to correct me. But I thought, you know, if anybody's going to be corrected, by, I mean, bring it on. I mean, you know, it's okay with me. If, if, if I'm going to get corrected, let it be by Bruce Walkie. I mean, the guy is brilliant. Um, he, in the winter, he worked at Regent in, in Vancouver with J.I. Packer and Eugene Peterson. Those were his friends. Um, he'd do that in the summer in Vancouver. And then in the winter, he'd come to Orlando and work at RTS. And, and so, you know, I thought, well, that's fine. Bruce Walkie is going to spank me and tell me, you have no idea... But I was just, and I'm a junior faculty member there, and Bruce Walkie's taking me to lunch. Okay. So we, we're eating lunch together, and, uh, and I'm just, the whole time, I'm just, waiting, I'm just waiting for the, by the way, Jim, God told me to tell you you're a heretic. You know, I was waiting. <laughs> I'm waiting for the moment, you know, that, that Bruce is going to, Bruce is going to kind of take me to the task. So we're about three-fourths way through the meal, and Bruce said, made some comment about, and he goes, you know, in Leviticus, and I thought, I don't really know Leviticus very well. I'm not going to admit that to Bruce right now. I'm just going to nod. And he said something about relationships and people talking to one another. And I thought, this is it. Okay. Dump the truck. You know, back up the truck. We're going to dump it. It's okay because it's Bruce Walkie, you know? And so I'm sitting there waiting for the, waiting for the moment. And he, you know, and he did some spiritual talk about hearing for one another and speaking truth and and, you know, and all of it was, I knew it was a setup to say, you know, do you even have a brain? I mean, I was just waiting. And he goes, Jim, I see you the way you work with people. And I was wondering, is there anything you see in my life you think I need to work on? Oh, my goodness. That's why he's such a scholar. He's so humble. That's why his story is so big because it's not about him. And he's still a learner after all those years. And I just sat and went, I, 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 and after about you know, three or four minutes of just um, thinking of something, what do you say? What I finally said to him is, Bruce, the only thing I can say is that um, I think everybody's going to tell you that you've got a few years left and that you ought to write as many books as you can. And, um, and I would just tell you, I think you've probably written enough books. I think you ought to invest in some students as deeply as you can. And pick seven or eight students. Pick a TA and just pour into them. And create small Bruce Walkies. And... Uh, because a, your story gets bigger. I didn't say this to him. Your story gets bigger when you understand it's a relational story. So the second lie, uh, if the first one is that it's all about you, the second lie is I don't need other people and I, I don't really need relationship. Third lie that will keep you in a small story is one person can't impact the world. In other words, what I do doesn't matter. 
oh, it doesn't matter that I look at porn. It doesn't matter that I cheated on this or I lied on that. It doesn't matter. My behavior doesn't really matter, and my life doesn't really matter. What I do doesn't really make an impact. You believe that, you'll never live a big story. You'll just settle for less. And, and that, that's that third lie that says, um, I've got a, um, um, that, that I, my life really won't matter. Um, your life if it is true that our God is sovereign, and it is true that our God is sovereign, and if it is true that our God is purposeful, and it is true that our God is purposeful, then your lives and your relationships and your neighbors and the people that you have been, that you, that have been placed in your life are there for a reason and a purpose. And, and you'll live a small story until you realize that you are supposed to be a part of that. The reason you're still here is there's something for you to do. Now, don't misunderstand that. Campus outreach folks sometimes misunderstand that. They sometimes think that means I need to be a doer, 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 doer. I need to make sure I'm always doing and performing. No, it just means that there is a purpose still in your life. Um, because if the purpose of the Christian life was Christian fellowship, he'd just take us on home because we'll have better fellowship there. If the purpose of the Christian life is more knowledge of God, both important things. You should have fellowship. You should have knowledge of God. He'd take us on home because you'll know him better there than you will here. There is a purpose that you have. See, later on today, we're going to be talking about, and listen to this phrase. I want us to develop an idea of what is your prophetic burden, meaning what are you supposed to do? And that doesn't mean I'm supposed to be an Indian chief or I'm supposed to be a fire truck operator or I'm supposed to be a but what are, you, what are you made to do? What do you... It's, it's funny. Um, I'm not sure what drives people. But Eisenhower, a president, um, his mother raised him, always saying this to him, that his presence, the family would fall apart without his presence. In other words, that there was a purpose to him being there. And he lived a very, he believed his mother. And he lived a very purposeful life. He was involved in uh, World War II and getting rid of Hitler. Um, he felt like his presence was important to do important things. Now, I'm not saying that we're supposed to do that. But remember, in God's economy, a big thing is loving a neighbor. In God's economy, a big thing is is, is, uh, is, may not be an extravagant thing. But some of the most amazing stories I've ever heard might, um, that have eternal impact um, are not always extravagant stories, but they're stories that, that, that are making a difference relationally. So, Three things that will make you live a small story is if you believe life is about you, if you believe that you're not relational, and if you believe that one person can't make a difference because one person can make a difference. I'd rather have one person truly committed than 10 people just interested.
You ever try to do something with 10 people that are just barely interested? I mean, it's like, I mean, it's a goat rodeo. It's just a mess. I'd much rather have one or two people committed than 10 people that are just kind of, well, maybe, we'll see. If nothing else comes up. And so um, the idea of, uh, of living in a, not living in a small story. Um, small stories versus eternal stories. Um, I'm going to shift gears for just a second. And I want you to think about something with me. And that's how you narrate your story. How do you tell your story to other people? Because we're going to be sharing our stories a little, little bit with each other around the table. And I want you to think about how you tell your story. There are four common ways that people tell their story. You can tell your story as if it's a tragedy and you, the narrator is a victim. Well, this happened to me. That happened to me. And the victim is basically trying to tell their world, take care of me, have pity on me. The victim doesn't believe they'll ever get love, so they'll settle for pity. How do you narrate your story? You see, in every story, there will be tragedy and sorrow on this side of heaven. We're between Eden and heaven, and you're homesick for something better than this place. And there will be sorrow. There will be betrayal. Don't, don't think that your story will be easier than Jesus' story. There will be betrayal in it. There will be disappointments. There will be sorrow. And the way you deal with sorrow, struggle, and suffering is going to be, as we'll talk about in a little bit when we talk about conflict, is going to be the, the essence of what kind of story is told. But the idea... Um, of story, um, you can tell your story as a victim. And a victim tells their story um, like a tragedy. There was a really kind of weird movie that came out a few years ago um, that had um, the guy who plays the same character in every movie he ever does, um, uh, Will Ferrell. It had Will Ferrell in it. And, uh, and the movie didn't do well because it was a, he was playing a different character than his regular character. Um, it was called Stranger Than Fiction. And it was a movie about a guy played by Will Ferrell who all of a sudden realized that there was someone writing the story of his life, that there was an author in the background, and he would hear the author, he would hear the author telling the story. And so he'd be walking... And it would be Harold Crick stood out and waited for the bus. And he'd go, who's that? Where's that voice? You know, where's that voice? And there was a narrator. And so he goes to an English professor and says, I've got this narrator in my head. And, uh, and, um, the, and the English professor says, well, you've got to figure out whether your story is a tragedy or a comedy. And he goes, well, how, how do I know? And he said, well, if it's a romantic comedy, then you've, you, get the, you get the woman at the end. If it's a tragedy, you die. <laughs> but it's a fascinating kind of interesting movie it was weird um, where it kind of messed up is the author was a really a, 
a, a bad author. It could have been a great story if the author had been a benevolent, um, God-like creature, God-like person. Instead, it was just this obnoxious writer. Um, but but the, the idea was that there's a story being told of their life, and that intrigued me uh, with this movie, but it was, anyway. What kind of narrator do you tell your story with? I'm a victim. So you tell everything as if you're a victim. Second way you can tell your story, as a clown. Your story is a comedy. And you want people to like you. You don't think you'll get love, but you might get friendship and you know, people to like you. You can imagine. I spent much of my early life telling my story as, as a clown. Keep them laughing. It's sad because it's ultimately a narrator that doesn't believe that love is truly possible. Just like a victim. Third way you can tell your story is as a hero. And a hero wants to be admired. And so something bad happens to, somebody goes through a, Family goes through a divorce. The victim says, oh, I can't believe it. And they tell their story like a victim. Same thing happens. The clown says, hey, so, you know, I guess we just couldn't get along. The hero says, it almost killed me, but I pulled myself up with blood dripping from my red eyes made it, and I crawled out of the mud and lived my life now. And the hero wants to be admired. Because they don't know that they'll be loved, but they'll settle for being admired. Meeting with a person the other day in counseling, and, and uh, he, he, he only knows how to talk about everything from the, from the voice of a hero. And, I, and so we were talking about a, a, some, some trauma that happened in his life, and I said, it'd be okay to say that that was bad. Well, it wasn't really bad, because I've overcome it. Well, um, it'd be okay to, to say that. But, you know, he, he had to be, he demanded admiration. The clown demands um, that you like them. The victim demands that you pity them and take care of them. The fourth way you can tell your story is as a cynic. And you tell your story like a documentary. You ever seen a documentary? You know, where the people are kind of on their side over here looking over and going, yes, these poor people haven't eaten in six months. You know, and you think, well, then give them food. Don't just take pictures of them. <laughs> um, but, you know, they, they tell the story once removed from it as a cynic, as an observer, never as a participant. And so they tell it safely from a place of no connection. The cynic wants to kind of be admired for their distance and their intellect. There's a, 
Um, I teach developmental psych for my students, uh, developmental psych for counseling students, and I usually show them a documentary called Babies. And it's, uh, <coughs> if you've ever seen it, it's really fascinating. These, these people um, followed a baby from birth to, to I think, uh, one year, or maybe two years. And, they, and that, that's all they do. And they followed a kid in Mongolia, a kid in Tokyo, a kid in, um, in Africa. I'm trying to think where, maybe Kenya, um, uh, a very poor part of Africa, and then a kid in San Francisco. So they followed four, four infants for... And there's a moment when the kid in Mongolia is about to be eaten by a yak. <laughs> I mean, and there's this, there's this... I don't know if it's a yak. I don't know. Just a, it's a... <laughs> It's an animal with horns, you know? I mean, it could just... And the kid is... The little baby's just out there crawling in the middle of... And I'm going, drop the stupid camera. There is a baby being in the middle of a stampede with... You know, but it's, they're docu- it's a documentary. And so they're just... We don't, we don't interfere. And it's like, there is a yak about to eat a baby. You know, stop it. But they're, it's a documentary. And so they're over here saying, let's study the way these four children are nurtured and raised in these different cultures. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that could be some, we could learn a lot from that. But don't be so disconnected that you don't care about what's taking place in their world. So you can tell your story if you want to. As a cynic, the documentary. The two most common ones that that Christians have, I think, um, is the cynic and the hero. You know, no problems here. We're going to... We're just... or as you get older, yeah, I guess I'm just separated a little bit. I just want to tell you, be aware of how you tell your story. How should a Christian tell their story? Well, sometimes you really are a victim. Sometimes you really are a, sometimes it is a comedy. Sometimes it is a, Sometimes there are some things to learn. I mean, there's a little bit of each of those that has some truth in it. But how are the Gospels told? That's a story being told. What's the narrator's voice of the Gospels? Well, that's told from the perspective of the beloved. So a Christian is supposed to be telling their story from the perspective of, I'm loved. I'm afraid, I'm hurt, but I'm loved. Um, I'm scared this hasn't worked out, but I'm loved. I'm, I'm blessed. I'm loved. I mean, the, the, the gospel is written from the perspective of the beloved. We're loved. And that's how I think God would invite you and I to tell our stories. So, This morning, what I wanted to start with is the idea of don't live in a small story. What does that mean? And I gave you three things that 
that uh, you got you to gotta get over if you're going to live in a bigger story. And then I wanted to say, hey, be aware as we begin to talk about story in just a few minutes, uh, that, um, that, that how you narrate, how you tell your story, because it says a whole lot about how you see God. It tells a whole lot about how you see yourself. And I mean, you realize that the way you, the way you see God, the way you think God sees you, and the way you see yourself will determine pretty much how you live your life. I mean, the way you answer those three questions, how you see yourself, how you see God, how you think God sees you, will determine pretty much how you live. I think God's mad at me. I think God loves me. I think God wants me to work for him. I think God is, I think I'm a loser. I think I'm, how you see yourself, how you think God sees you, and how you see God will determine how you live your life. And so, this morning, I just wanted to start with the idea of a small story. How do we narrate our stories? So far, we've talked about setting, and I've hinted toward plot. When we do the storyboard, we'll do plot. I'm just going to spend a very short period of time. I know we're about time for a break, but if you can, can we stay for maybe, maybe 20 more minutes, 15 more minutes, and let me do character so we can kind of get that done? And then, then we'll do plot when we come back, which, which is going to be our, our deal. Does that make sense? So just kind of, you know, be heroic. Don't be a victim. But, but can we stay with you for Can we stay about 20 more minutes? Yes. <laughs> Thanks for that overwhelming non-vote. Can we stay for 20 more minutes? I don't know. Where am I? All right. Remember, a story is a character who wants something and has to go through conflict to get it. Every good story. I'd love for you at the end of this weekend to be able to say, here's who I am. Here's what I'm made to do, my prophetic burden. And here's what I'm going through to get to that place. Because that's really basically the, the, the jacket of most novels, that basically what it says, the, the synopsis of most movies will say, you know, Frodo, uh, that's the character, um, had a ring he had to take to Mordor, wherever, <laughs> and he and a group of seven helpers tried uh, to go through um, incredible peril to get it there. That's the story. So there's a character who wants something and has to go through conflict to get it. So the character. Um, you don't, I said this yesterday, you don't need to know yourself for the sake of self. You need to know yourself for the sake of loving others. There's all these little psychological tests people take. You know, like the Myers-Briggs or the, the, the little one that, that, that you're an animal, you're like either a aardvark or golden retriever, or a, you know, prairie dog or something. Um, 
you can either be, and then there was one that went around Christian circles for a while where you're either sanguine or phlegmatic or something else. I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, and then there's the disc test, which is, which, you know, said whether you were, you dominated or whether you didn't. And I mean, you've been around long, have you been around at all? Those things make their circles in churches and, and some people live by those things. I actually, I actually worked once at an institution that had your name on your, on the, on the, your, your name on the, on your office door, and then underneath it, your Myers-Briggs temperament. <laughs> and so it was Jim Coville, DNFP. And, you know, so, like, it was almost like, here's who I am, here's who I am, don't expect anything else of me. Of course, of course I can't do deadlines. I'm a P. What a, I mean, look at, look at this. And, um... I mean, it was just—it was crazy. I mean, uh, this place. I, this, this is true. This, this was at a university. I won't tell you the name of that university. They're orange in color. <laughs> I was a staff psychologist for them um, in their counseling center, and and <laughs> anyway, um, it was interesting. Um, but it was almost like. Um, but there's something that intrigues us about that. Because we do want to know that there's something helpful in that, in that in some ways. You just don't want to go too far. What you really want, the reason you really ought to know other people's personalities and your own is, is it, it helps you love people better. My son Pierce is an introvert. And, and, and do you think I'm an introvert? Well, not really. Um, pretty extroverted. Now, if you don't know what an extrovert's thinking, it's because you haven't been listening, because they've been talking. <laughs> uh, if you, now, if you don't know what an introvert's been thinking, it's because you didn't ask them, because they need their internal processors. Introverts tend to need time to figure things out. Extroverts, just, I'm going to tell you the truth, we don't know what we're talking about until we're about halfway through the third sentence. <laughs> I mean, that's just true. I, I, have, I have before said, to, I've, I've stood in a class for and said, there's three things that you need to know. And I only knew two. But I knew I'd think of a third one before we got to the end, and I didn't want to be put in a box. And so it's like, there's three things that you have to do if you're going to be a counselor. First, and then I knew the first two. But I knew I'd come up with a third one, because that's how extroverts think. Right? Um, my son Pierce, he's an introvert. So he would get in trouble, and I would say something like, all right, I need to know right now what are you doing with me now. And he'd go, what's wrong? Got your tongue? That's a sign you're not really paying attention. And, and I realized I was parenting him as if he was an extrovert, that he'd be able to quickly think about what he wanted to say, answer my question, in the fly with me. That's bad parenting. And what I needed to do, and I finally started doing it, would say, son, I'm not sure what's going on with your grades, but I'm, it's, it's not working. So once you go to your room, um, you know, the report card would come out. Um, once you go to your room, I'm going to come in there in about 15 minutes and 
and you need to let me know what's happening because this isn't acceptable. And then I'd leave him alone. Well, there's a novel thought for an extrovert. You know, I didn't chase him into his room going, well, have you decided yet? What, what are we doing? What are you thinking about? Hmm, huh, huh, hmm. Um, and it was amazing when I understood his temperament how much better parent I was, how much better kid he was. Because I was parenting against his grain. You know that passage, raise a child up in the way he should go and when he's old he will not depart from it. Bruce Walkie told me that that verse can be interpreted a couple of different ways. Um, in East Tennessee, where I'm, I'm from, that, that's interpreted, even though my kid's a hellraiser today, I took him to church every Sunday, and so by golly, someday he's coming back to Jesus. That, that's how that's interpreted in East Tennessee. Um, now, Bruce, now, and, and it, it's okay, to, I, that, that may be true, but Bruce suggested that, uh, that in Hebrew, the first word there, when it was talking about raise up, is a, is a root word that is also used as in the root word of a word that's used for midwives when a newborn baby is born, when they try to create a desire for them to suck. And he said one way to interpret that, that word would be to say, create a desire. Raise a kid in a way that creates a desire, that makes them thirsty, that makes them... Um, and then the, the phrase, Bruce said, in the way he should go, it's fascinating. Um, he, he said that, that that phrase can be interpreted the way it's often interpreted, you know, kind of in a righteous way. But he said another way to see that, that, that and it may be both, is that is the, is the way he should go is in the way that a reed bends in the wind. And so one way to interpret that passage that's often interpreted, I think, incorrectly, is raise your kids in a way that creates a desire, but know them well enough to, to raise them in the way that they are bent, in the way that they are wired, in the, in, in the way that their, their temperament is, and they won't depart from it. They'll learn from it. And, and quite frankly, that interpretation is more helpful to me than the traditional interpretation. Because the, interp the traditional interpretation, I've seen too many missionary kids who've become drug addicts and drug addicts kids who've become missionaries. I've just seen too much of that. I, I don't, and I've seen kids who don't seem to fall in line. I was kidding with our kids the other day. Our most faithful kid, I mean, in terms of, of faith, is the one that we parented the least who came from the most difficult of circumstances. Kim, we didn't have Kim until she was in ninth, 10th grade. And she just loves Jesus. Um, <laughs> at her wedding, she wants to wash our feet. I'm going, um, no, Kim, we don't do that at weddings. That's like, she goes, no, I really want to. And I'm saying, no, no, Kim, that, that, you know, trying to convince her that this is a really bad idea. Um, she just, and, and so we were kidding, you know, my and I were going, so our parenting works best when uh, it's really in small doses right at the end. Um, but, so, so, I, so I think that old interpretation of that passage sometimes um, creates guilt in parents. 
that, um, and I think Bruce's way of understanding it, and it's probably both. I mean, the Bible's that complex. It's probably a little of both. But Bruce's way of kind of when he knew the language, the idea, there's, there's something about knowing the character, the temperament of our kids that matters. The funny thing is many of us don't even know our own character and temperament. Who are you? Apart from what you do, there, there are days you take away what I do I'm sometimes not sure who I am. I'm a child of the king. Who are you? Beyond your performance, beyond your, what you do, who are you? Are you naturally curious? Are you naturally artistic? Are you naturally um, cautious? Are you a risk taker? Are you, do you even know? Or have you just been living as a reactor for so long, you don't even know your character? You know, one of the things that in, in movies... And by the way, I ought, to, I ought to say that some of the material that I've used, I've been really influenced by a lot of people. Um, Larry Crabb, I like um, a lot. Don Miller, his theology is not always good, and he writes to the kind of the generation below me so he doesn't use uh, punctuation or capital letters, <laughs> which, which make his books hard for me to get to. But I really like his stuff. Um, Matter of fact, the material that, um, I, I mean, the, the reason I, I went to that thing in Hollywood is he, is he talked about it in one of his books, and it seemed interesting, and so I, I, I kind of tracked down what it was and went. Um, but, but, but do you know your character? I mean, some of us, um, some of us have been surviving for so long, we don't even know who we are. We don't know what motivates us. We don't know what our fears are. We don't, know our, we don't even know our story well enough. And so there is something about knowing your character, knowing yourself, knowing who you are, knowing your temperament that's helpful. Now, I don't like all the little categories, and, and, and I don't care if you like the Myers-Briggs or the... Um, any, one, any number of those things. It's not bad to take those sort of things or study those sort of things or think about it just to give you an idea of what you're like. Um, if, uh, it's really helpful. I was working with a couple the other day and they took some test and I don't even know what the test was, but he came out on the test as somebody who's really justice oriented and he, he's kind of against stuff. And that's his temperament. And so, you know, he's real justice-oriented. And the wife said, oh, I, I get it now. I mean, that's, that's what's really important to him. When he sees a situation, he measures it by justice. And it was like, it was so helpful. You know, there are people, there are people in the secular community, there's people in the, in the academy that write about that 
EQ, that IQ is not near as important as EQ. And EQ is simply the ability to, um, it, it's emotional intelligence. And it's the ability to read your own emotions and manage them, read other people's emotions and manage them, and to be able to move toward a task. And, and, and the people that can do that are more successful, even if they have lower IQ, because they, because they know how to engage other people. You know, and you're seeing a really example of this right now, and I'm not, again, I'm not talking about politics at all here, other than just an example that you see. Um, you know, and we're finding out even more about, um, you know, Bill Clinton, um, uh, even in this election, of things that he did and that sort of stuff. And, 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 and you can really dislike him or like him. I, I, that's not the point. He had an incredibly high EQ. And, and people liked him, even though he was... Um, had incredibly problem with, 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 with scruples. His wife does not have a high EQ, but they have the same basic values, the same basic message, the same basic worldview. And his likability scores are like in the 80%. I mean, even people who, even people who just kind of can't stand his politics go, you know, I wouldn't mind getting beer with him. <laughs> I mean, you know, but it's, it's like there's something, and, and his wife, who has the same values he has, same worldview he has, I mean, you know, people go, I wouldn't want to, don't put me in a room with her. What's the difference? It's EQ. He was a brilliant um, at reading people and, and, and engaging people and, and managing emotions and people. That's, that's a skill. He, he, and, and I don't want you to develop that skill for manipulative purposes. I want you to develop so you know what you're supposed to do with your life. You gotta know your story, know your character. I mean, we're, some of us are like chameleons that just become whatever the things around us want us to be. And I think God made you more specific than that. And so the first step for some of you, what we're gonna be doing on the storyboard might kind of be more advanced than you. And when I talk about coming up with your prophetic burden, some of you are gonna go, how can I come up with my prophetic burden? I'm I don't even know what my favorite color is. I mean, I, I, I don't know. And, and that's okay. I mean, there's no, I mean, that's fine. But there's an invitation by God. God made you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made to reflect his glory. And, and you need to know how you're uniquely wired and made. And if you've never thought about that, it's not egotistical to think about it. What am I made for? Um, we do that physically, automatically. You know, I mean, I was not made to be a ballerina. Um, pretty clear. Um, we, we physically, quickly evaluate, I'm not going to be this, I'm not going to be that. I mean, we, with our giftedness, sometimes we do that. But with our personality, often we don't even stop long enough to think about it. So when, you, when I think about character, I want you to think about um, understanding the, the person that God made you to be. Um, that you are, um, and that and when you think about um, how you are, um, kind of knowledge of yourself, um, know that, um, 
know that at the very core, there are some things that are universal about all of us. Real quick, stay with me for just a couple minutes and then we're going to take a break, I promise. One of the things that's core for all of us is significance, that we want significance and security. What does God say at the end? He says, someday he will say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. I want to feel like my life matters and that I'm loved. Those are visceral core values in all of us. Those are the motivational factors in us. That's what drives many of our our addictions and our struggles is that longing for significance and security, that longing for relationship and impact. However you want to say it, those are the things that, that, that will drive you. In some cases, those are, the, those are the things that make you afraid. I'm not going to have an impact, so I don't try. Or I want to have an impact, so I try. But the idea of I want to make an impact and I want to have relationships are the two drivers of kind of, the, of an image bearer of God that, that, is going to, that's, that you need to wrestle with. So how do, you uniquely, how do you uniquely seek and live out impact? And how do you uniquely live out a longing for significance and specialness. And that's just really helpful for you to know. If you don't know those things, you'll tend to be making the decisions you make about your life and your story just kind of on a, on a whim. Does that make sense? All right. I, I can, um, when we come back, I'm going to say one more thing about character, but I'm losing you. So let's, let's, take, a, let's take a break. Um, and so it's 10, it's, it's about 12 after 10. And so at 1040, we'll come back and start again. Remember, if you have questions, put them up here.